You're listening to Trek FM. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to Trek FM's local watering hole where you guys know the hosts from the network and got some great friends. They drop by all the time and we talk all things geeky. Uh, I hope that you do have something special ordered up from Ruby tonight because we are going to have, I think, just a fan freaking fantastic time um this is a it's going to be a fun show uh before we get there i just wanted to remind everybody that the 602 club is part of trek fm the network at trek.fm online and you can find all of our different shows there uh, we are in so many different places right now we're on stitcher TuneIn, spreaker soundcloud windows phone and of course you can download the mp3 file from our website if you'd like and get that rss link and put it in any single podcatcher and be able to listen to that any way possible. In fact, we're also a feature provider on iTunes, and right now we have something really special going on, and I'd like my executive producer, Norman Lau, to tell you about the contest we have running with iTunes reviews. Norm? Yeah, so if you actually see what Matthew has posted on the Babel conference, there is a really tasty contest that's going on regarding all of the feedback that you can give us in terms and in the form of reviews. Now, we love reviews. We love all the type of feedback that you send our way. And I do believe that we are looking for a ceiling of 100 reviews by when, Matthew? Well, yeah, that is the thing. We are trying to get as close to 100 reviews as possible on iTunes. Um, And the goal is to have those in so that when we choose at random on November 3rd, you are entered to win a $50 gift card from Amazon. And in fact, that means you have two months to get those reviews in. So it's going to be going a while. We'll be talking about it a while, but I just wanted to kind of introduce it to everybody here. And Norm, you one-upped me and we're like, <laughs> I'll see your $50 Amazon gift card and yes. raise you. I will raise you, sir, a USS Vengeance from Eagle Moss Publications. And... I'm not sure if a lot of the listeners know this. Most of you may know this, but for the new listeners out there, I was at one point in time an associate producer of the show and still am in a way um, as an executive producer for the entire network. But this is one of my perks that I am offering the show as an associate producer slash type. And I want to make sure that Matthew has what he needs to make sure that you, our fans, our listeners have the opportunity to get something super cool and This is one of those special releases for Eagle Moss, so it's not your run-of-the-mill chapter-type releases. This is a special release, and it is gorgeous. It is larger than all of the different ships that are released out there. They've only done a few. They've done Deep Space Nine. They've done a Borg Cube. They've done the J.J. Abrams version of the Enterprise, and obviously, so I can line that up and have a ship chasing it, you have to have a Vengeance. So the USS Vengeance is available for one of you lucky winners who writes in a review. 
So you can check out all the details on the Pable Conference. That's our listeners-only discussion group. Or you can go to facebook.com slash trekfm and check out all the details there as well. Hope you guys will help us out. And for your trouble, you'll definitely be entered to win that gift card and the USS Vengeance. We we just appreciate you guys and thought we'd have a great time uh, doing this together. So, well, we are going to talk about something really fun tonight. Um, and before we get into that, I just want to introduce who's with me tonight. You already heard Norm's here. Norm, it's great to have you back in the 602. Always great to be here. You know I love it here. And, well, I've actually, I've, I've eaten up a lot of airtime. So long we get to... Uh... Let's get to our other special guest for tonight. That's right. And back with us, I'm so excited for his first non-Star Wars show, is Bruce Gibson. Bruce, it is great to have you here back in the 602. Well, thank you for having me. So uh, we're we're not talking Star Wars tonight? Not tonight. Not tonight. Um, We'll be doing that soon, you and I, as we talk about episode three soon. Okay. um, Well, let's talk about something else, something new that's out in theaters. Okay, okay. Uh, I, uh, what about Mission Impossible? Did you guys see that? Yes. Okay, okay. I, I think Norm did. He's singing the theme song. <laughs> Lalo Schifrin. Lalo Schifrin, you are just weaved into my brain. Uh, it's so not even good. fair. It so is. It good. really is. That really is. I, I. This has nothing to do with the, the outline we have, but man, that theme really is one of the greatest themes for a television and or movie series ever. Absolutely. I mean, we are going to be doing like Uncle later on, but, and you know, he did music for that. But there's something about this particular one. It's like, it's, it's so recognizable. And it's one of those, I can name that TV show in like five bars, like, you know, Star Trek. Now, most people know that or dun, 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 dun. This is one of those things. And maybe that's, a, maybe that's just the way it was in the 1960s where you had something really catchy for your audience that they can just whistle and just have kind of like rattle around in their brains. Yeah. Nowadays, we don't even write things for TV shows. I mean, we barely give them credit sequences at all if, if they do at all. And so, yeah, it's, it's kind of sad that that's gone by the wayside. Well, and this theme sounds doesn't sound out of date. It doesn't sound like it's something from 50 years ago. I think it, you know, if it was written today, I, it wouldn't surprise me. It sounds, it sounds current. It doesn't sound old to me. And it, I think it's one of the best, if not the best theme songs in TV history. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I, I, I think it, you know, when you think of TV themes, I think a lot of people might think of, of uh, something like Star Trek, but Mission Impossible is definitely going to be up there. Um, with all the great themes that they've done. I mean, you know, you think of Happy Days or you might think of Sanford and Son or something like that. But Mission Impossible is just, I mean, you hear it and you feel like you want to be on a mission. I think that's what's so cool about it. Um, Well, I kind of wanted to ask you guys what your mission history is with the TV show. And, you know, we've had uh, four movies and this is the fifth. And so just kind of wanted to to see where you guys are coming from and what you thought about, especially the movie history that we've had now uh, with, I mean, gosh, Tom Cruise, this original movie was like 1990. It was a while ago. It was a while ago. Yeah. And it's funny too, because um, when you get a movie series as, as long in the tooth as this is, and, and five, I think five movies in a series is pretty long. I mean, in Fast and the Furious, you have that span of time. But it really does allow you to catch certain glimpses and windows of 
when that movie came out, the time period, and like the flavor and the fashion of the time since it's not period. And if you watched the first movie to the last movie in succession, there's a lot of growth, like literally a lot of growth in Tom Cruise as kind of like this, uh, the younger action-y type of hero to definitely like a more mature and very comfortable in his own skin character in Ethan Hunt. Now, for me, I don't really have a huge history with the TV show as, say, like John Champion does with Man From U.N.C.L.E., but I, I've seen it, you know, I've, uh, ever, ever since I saw Airplane, I fell in love with Peter Graves, and so I had to go back and see his former work. I was like, wow, okay, so he's on this really huge hit TV show from the 1960s, and I thought it was really interesting. I think when I started watching it, I was a little younger, so I didn't really appreciate it for what it was. But for the you know episodes that I've seen you know since then, like on TV Land or Nick at Night or some of these these channels that you know they show the reruns and stuff, I, I'll watch it if it's if it's on. But if it comes on and you just hear the theme song, it kind of drags you in. You got to see it. You're like, oh, Mission Impossible's on because you hear that dun 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 dun, and it just it's hooked. I mean, that is really literally a hook. Yeah, my history with the show isn't much of a history either. I, I didn't grow up watching the show. When I think of uh, that show, it seemed to be something that was on in the afternoons uh, when I was at school. So maybe I caught it when I was homesick. But uh, I've seen a few episodes since then. And uh, relating it to the movies, it's, of course, much tamer, not as much action um, but I mean, so a lot of ways it still stands up. I, I, I think it's done very well. And of course, Leonard Nimoy joined the cast, what, like fifth season, something like that. He came in later into the series, which is hard to watch sometimes for me because it's, I keep thinking Spock is in Mission Impossible. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with you guys uh, you know not a ton of history with the actual show seen bits and pieces here and it was really the the films that kind of pulled me in you know i i knew mission impossible and its history in the sense that it was a tv show it was very popular and they were bringing it back into the film and and yeah it was 1996 when the first one came out so it was quite a long time ago and then they didn't do a second one till 2000, um, a third one in 2006, uh, 2011, you have um, Ghost Protocol, and now, of course, we have Rogue Nation, and they're already planning Mission Impossible 6. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's um, it's really interesting to see because the progression, too, of the films is very interesting. Um, what did you guys think about the, the films and, and just kind of, Walk me through what you thought of a little bit of each one, because there aren't many times where I feel like a film series lasts this long and people are really this engaged with it. Well, I was talking about this with somebody from work, and I said, if there's something that can be said about all of these films, regardless of how you feel about them personally, in critiques or praise, I really do believe that each one of these things is a very good product. As, as a movie, as a, as a ticket-paying audience member, all of these have really good merits to them in terms of a movie product. It's a great summer movie. You don't really have to invest yourself so heavily into it, say that you do um, a Bond series, because I think the Bond series are just a little bit more dense in their storytelling. But I love the first one. It had a lot of 
it had a lot of charm to it, mainly because it's Mission Impossible. And you're like, okay, how are they going to do this in a movie series? So Mission Impossible 1, you introduce a whole new Impossible Mission Force team. And it's really interesting. John Voight holds it down as the, the senior agent and kind of like the whole reason and plot behind what is going on. Uh, you are introduced to Emmanuel Baird, who is gorgeous and and um, in that spy, that European spy um, allure type of way. And then you have like some pretty interesting, you know, secondary characters that round out the second Impossible Mission Force team with Jean Renault. Everyone loves him from The Professional or uh, Leon, um, as it was, uh, as its other name is known. Then you have Ving Rhames, who, you know, Luther is just really, really cool because he's Ving Rhames. Um, so you, and it's it's a just a, it's a fun movie. I I really like the first one. I'm not so sure if I'd be the best person to review the second one because I'm a big John Woo fan from his Hong Kong days when he's doing things like Hard Boiled and the Better Tomorrow series and Bullet in the Head. He kind of let me down in his American directorial effort in Mission Impossible. So I don't know, Bruce. Did you feel the same way? Yeah, the first movie I. I really enjoy. I would say that it's probably my second, third favorite of the the five films. And honestly, the second film I always think of the one that I is my least favorite, and I always seem to have a hard time remembering what that movie is. So that one obviously is my least favorite. If I'm always saying, "No, wait, what was that one about again?" I can never remember the. Th- but the third and fourth movies is where it really starts to pick up for me. So I would say first I would put somewhere in the middle, maybe at number even at number four. But it's like number two it dips, but number three it comes back up. Number four I think it itches up even more, and then I'll leave it till later where I say where number five is. Well, strange enough, there is a very interesting Star Trek connection to number two. And it's not who he works for, it's who worked for them, and it's Ronald D. Moore and Brandon Braga. They are the writers of Mission Impossible 2. I honestly didn't know that until just now, this is looking around at things. So, um, But I'm with you, uh, guys. I, 2 is the one that I don't remember because I don't like it. I didn't, I didn't enjoy the film. Really, when it came out, it didn't seem to fit the Mission Impossible mold. It felt like hey, let's save Tom Cruise and make him James Bond-style character. And that's I, I, I knew instinctively that's not what Mission Impossible is because it's more of a team effort, and they it didn't feel that in the second one. And so I like one, and I, I love three. I mean, gosh, I, I had no idea you could come back for the third movie in a series and it feel like the best one you'd seen so far. And J.J. Abrams was involved in that, so another Star Trek um there and then of course Alex uh, Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi wrote that one uh, so even more Star Trek uh, apparently Mission Impossible and Star Trek can't get away from each other and uh, and then Ghost Protocol comes out with yep. um, Brad Bird as the director and it blew me away and, 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 and you know like you Bruce I'm not giving away what I thought of this newest one uh, Rogue Nation but so far Ghost Protocol just hands down best best one so far i thought i mean it's just ridiculously awesome well i think that the escalation of the spy movies in the mid-2000s pretty much they they were all starting to elevate each other you had the born 
franchise that was starting to ramp up. Then you had the return to the Mission Impossible format, which was starting to obviously gain more speed past three. And then you had Casino Royale in 2005. So you had, it's like if you bring in a really good player like Casino Royale, everything ups their game after that because you have to or else you're going to lose your audience share. You're going to say like, well, why would I bother seeing this when I can invest myself in this? Not everyone out there in the audience wants to divest themselves of all the different, like all the spy interests because some people think that if you've seen one spy movie, you've seen them all, which is clearly not the case. But Mission Impossible definitely has its own feel and format since three. And the Bourne identity or the Bourne franchise had its own kind of set standard and mission statement for its type of film. And so did Bond after the reboot of Casino Royale. And I really do think that they found like the, the perfect balance between four and five of really how to dial in what Mission Impossible means as a franchise. Because if they do it right, they really can continue this series. I wouldn't say indefinitely, but at least for another four, five, six films maybe. Well, what's so fun about the series is that instead of it feeling like all of the other you know, spy franchises, it feels like Mission Impossible. You know, it, it has its own sense of being. It it doesn't just seem like it's a Bond knockoff. It doesn't seem like it's a Bourne knockoff. It doesn't feel like any of that. It, it's created its own identity, and it plays very much in that. And that's what I really like is that um, it differentiates itself from the other spy genre films so that when you go to it, you immediately feel ingrained in the Mission Impossible movie universe and they've kept that and they really I think in three four and now in five they've they've so continued to go in that direction um, and they have it down I think not in a bad way to a science like how this Mission Impossible universe works they really get it and the writers and the directors are coming in with fun new ideas. I love that they're, you know, continuing to kind of mix it up director wise because that keeps each film a little bit interesting. I mean, for us, you know, it sounds like the John Woo one was a little bit of a mistake, but so far the rest of everybody has kind of brought their own thing and done their own thing. So, I, but at the same time, it, it it's Mission Impossible. And, you know, just like the best Bond movies, they feel like Bond, but at the same time they can have their own sense of, of scope to them. Especially I think of, you know, with Skyfall and, and having its own, I mean, the way that that's directed, the way it's shot and everything, it creates almost its, its, its own universe, but at the same time you immediately recognize it as Bond. And, and that's what the best directors do. And I think that's what's been happening Mission Impossible, and and it's so nice to have a series not just devolve into the base denominator of what moviegoers want. I, I just really like that. Now I'm looking at IMDb, and I'm really surprised how far apart the span of time is is between each one of these. Sequels. Yes, yeah, that's yeah. really. I mean, that's it's impressive, but and I know that Tom Cruise is a you know he's an A-lister, and he has a lot of projects in between. Let's take a look at the timeline here. So you have Mission Impossible in 1996, and they all relatively come out the same time. So we're we're thinking like you know July August. Let's just say that you know so we have like rounded years here. So you have 1996 to 2000. That's four years. And I think that after Mission Impossible 2, the franchise was probably taking a look at itself and saying, okay, 
I think we probably missed the mark here. We need to retool it. So Mission Impossible 2 to 3 is six years. It's a I long mean, time. You, yeah, and in the realm of sequelitis, you're looking at maybe two or three between films. And then from three to four, 2006 to 2011, that's five years. I mean, that's, that's a decent amount of time. And from now, from Ghost Protocol in 2011 to now, it's been four years. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, yes, there are five movies and they're all great in their own respects to being debatable, but I'm not sure if we can get another leap like that out of these actors for another film to continue them in the field. Do you guys agree with that? Because I'm not saying that Tom Cruise can't do it at 55 because he's 50 now. But if there's a sixth movie, they really have to start thinking about it. Some type of a succession plan if they want to keep this franchise rolling. And I think they have a plan that that there is a six movie coming. Six movie, I think they're working on it right now or putting a script together or gave the green light to it already. But you're right. I mean, how, I, you know, this franchise lends itself to the idea that because it's not about an individual, even though it's focusing on this one character as the main character, you can certainly bring in a new team of characters into the next movie and then you know, slowly build them into being the lead and Tom Cruise could then take a back seat and then eventually leave the franchise and let it continue to go on. I think too, part of the success from three to now has been the fact that they have had that time in between and that every time they come back, I feel like Tom Cruise is fully behind what's happening. He likes the story. He, he likes the director he's working with and they are all giving it their all. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes in Hollywood when you rush things, it just doesn't go as well. It's it's kind of the reason I always enjoyed the fact that George gave himself three years between Star Wars sequels. He wanted to have enough time to make sure it was all polished and done well, at least when he was doing the prequels. You know, he had that set amount of time. And here, I, I feel like, you know, from two to three really helped. They find what they want to do and they make it really successful. You know, um, uh, they get J.J. Abrams as the director and, and uh, he's done Alias and he does a fantastic job. From three to Ghost Protocol, I, you know, I, I'm i not sure they knew how to one-up three yet, but then they find an amazing story that really works, works with the character, works what they done in three and, uh, you know, now kind of jumping into Rogue Nation, I think they've really found that same thing. So time can help, but now time is not their friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, time is not on their side anymore when it comes to just the fact that Cruz is getting older. But the great thing, like you said, Norm, Cruz can take the back seat and be the team leader now from, you know, behind the computer and stuff. And somebody like Renner or heck, just put Rebecca Ferguson in there as the team uh, leader on the field. Why not? You know, I think that she would be perfect for it. I hope that that's kind of what they're setting up because uh, we will rave about her later, but she deserves every bit of praise that she gets for this film because it's, it's bloody brilliant what she pulls off in this movie. I just, I really, really love it. So, you know, I know, I know a lot of people have their opinion about Tom Cruise, but Outside of the movies, that's up. You know, that's that's entirely your opinion. But I have to give him credit where credit is due. And when he wants to deliver on a movie, he delivers. Oh yeah, 
You know, he, I mean, he puts his mind to it. He wants to craft a good product. I think everybody around him, uh, their game is elevated to something that they're not probably, they don't even know about themselves. I think Emily Blunt attested to that in Edge of Tomorrow. You know, there, I know that people have, again, they have their opinion about the quality of his acting or the quality of his end result. But every single one of these movies, regardless if you like him or not, I personally believe that he puts every single ounce of his energy and his professionalism into trying to really tell you a good story and to entertain you for the money that you're that you're parting ways with uh, as a as an audience member, as a theater goer. And, and for that, I'll give him a lot of credit. Well, let's jump in to the new mission and let's start with Cruz. I mean, they're back um and they have all the, the a lot of the main characters back. They have Cruz and Peg and Rames and, and Renner. Um, there's no mention of Cruz's wife, uh, Michelle Moynihan, which I thought was a little bit odd because they do make a connection point with that in Ghost Protocol. And so before we get into anything else, do you think that they maybe got divorced or something? And, and not because they didn't like each other, but just because of the safety issue with what had happened in, in three and then what we know would happen between three and four? I think they're still together. I, I The way I viewed it was that the end of Ghost Protocol, you know, she, they set it up that she had died to protect her identity and start off with a new identity so that people wouldn't relate her to him for protection. And the way that movie ended, he saw her, he was standing like on a pier and she's walking into a shop or something like that. And they're just eyeing each other. And that movie left me wondering, okay, does he keep his distance from her? Does, and occasionally like whatever sneaks into the, house to see her and he's off doing his missions so they're not together all the time to the point that i think they're still together because he never hooked up with the female character i felt like she at times was making uh i'm talking about rebecca ferguson's character i felt there were times that she was flirting and making little advances and he kept pulling back as if i'm already taken i've got someone at home so i think he's still with his wife i think she's still there she's just hidden away and kept protected yeah, I actually, I reviewed Ghost Protocol just the other day just to refresh my memory about all the details that were alluded to in in Rogue Nation. And at the very end, you're right, Bruce, he, he, he kind of clarifies for Brant's character, Jeremy Renner, that his wife did not die in, that, uh, in, in what Brant believed was a failed mission for, um, for what he was trained to do to, to bodyguard Ethan Hunt's wife. Now, I think it's just one of those J.J. Abram-esque things or something just in the writing to let fans just talk about it at the end. Is he with her? Is he not with her? Did he make the choice to sacrifice his relationship to keep her safe? That's so romantic. Or is he so good that the only way that they can be together is that if no one from his team knows about the relationship. So you can, you can go about it a bunch of different ways. And I think they all work. All those scenarios play out logically. But it was nice to at least have that in some way wrapped up before Rogue Nation. And for me, I don't really think that he was holding off the advances of, was it Ilsa? It was her name? Ilsa. Ilsa. Yeah, that's it. Because he was taken, I think that in his experience, it's probably best not to 
confuse the situation where he didn't have all the information of who this player was because that may be that romantic card may be something that he could have played out later for more advantageous purposes. So that was more of like a, a feeling out type of measure. And maybe they might play at later on in six or, you know, there is that kind of throwback to the Bond fans where like, don't do it because this is how James Bond lost Tracy yeah. in Her Majesty's Secret Service. So <laughs> very true. don't go that way because, you know, we've kind of, we, we know what happens when, when spies or people in this field get together. It doesn't end well. And like in Casino Real with, with James and Vesper, you know, you just, you want it to work, but at the same time, you would rather not have it turn into a cliche and mm-hmm. I think the way they, they they handled it in Rogue Nation was just just right, where you're not you're not ignoring that he was married, but at the same time, it doesn't become an issue when he has to fulfill the mission, and it doesn't get complicated. Yeah, it's definitely something you guys both pointed out the fact that they 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 kind of leave it open so that they can play with that. And in this movie, it's um it is connected obviously with what happened. In the other films, I love the way that they do it with Alec Baldwin just going through the missions and being like, this is the Kremlin before and this is after. You know, um, I, I think that that was really fantastic, the way that they kind of brought all of the films together to kind of play into where they are now. Um, but at the same time, the personal aspect of Cruz's character wasn't as much of a focus here. And so we can answer that question later. And yeah, he doesn't get intimate with Ilsa at all. They hug at the end, but I mean, I, I hug people all the time that I like uh, as friends. That doesn't mean that we're romantic. So, um, and they just went through a harrowing experience. I mean, Cruz dies. Spoiler alert in the movie, um, and then comes back. You know, so, just to break yeah. in there, it's not so much a spoiler when you put it in the preview. That's true. That's true. You were just dead a moment ago. What are you talking about? I, I was pretty shocked that they actually slipped that one in, but uh, yeah, cares, I was right? too. I <laughs> was too. They love to do that. Um, the ruin ruin things uh, in the previews these days. Well, um, they brought him back with what? Khan's blood? Is that? Or am I confusing? Yeah, that with it was a magic movie? tribble. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you've seen it before. There's a tribble so. in the sewer. Yeah. <laughs> Simon Pegg had him. <laughs> Okay, so yeah, Cruz is back, and I, I you know, you, you were saying earlier, Norm. I just think I I love Tom Cruise again. You know, he he. I think he's been able to find a way to kind of get himself out of that weird place that he was in, and that was by finally making movies where he's comfortable. You know, I I think um, him playing basically a character of himself of what would people think of him in you know, Edge of Tomorrow was so perfect. I mean, just dead on casting because it works because it's Tom Cruise um, playing what people kind of think he is in real life and then turning it on its head. And and then here, you know, he's always been good in the Mission Impossible films. And um, yeah, I, I, he's a fine actor. He really is. And so I, I'm so glad that he's gotten... To, to find his way back um, because I've always really enjoyed um, so many of his movies, you know, from Top Gun on. And uh, it, it's good to have kind of Tom Cruise back in that place. And and it's not because 
he was an A-lister. It's it's because he earned it back from people. Mm-hmm. And I, I like that. Yeah, you know, when I saw the the preview for Rogue Nation, I think there was a collective eye roll, you know, in the theater, like, oh, please, you know, kind of thing. And I was like, you know what? I did that too. It goes protocol. And I was thoroughly entertained. And just judging by the reaction of the opening weekend crowd, and it was a full theater at my local mm-hmm. theater yeah. at 3.30 in the afternoon. And people were applauding and hooting and hollering and high-fiving and they everyone had a great time. So it is what it is. I mean, Tom Cruise is who he is, but at the, and at the end of the day, he delivered this fantastic movie and so did all the other new characters. And I can't say enough about Rebecca Ferguson. Mm. Yeah. I, she literally, much like Paula Patton did in in 4, she literally stole every single scene that she was in, especially... Definitely. The scene in the opera house mm-hmm. oh with gosh. that yellow dress. Un- Unreal. Unreal how good yeah. she was in that. I just, she is in, ah, gosh. We'll talk about it now. She is everything that Ethan Hunt is. She is every bit his equal. Um, and, and that's what makes her so awesome. And there's never any pandering to her, oh, that she's the woman or, oh, she needs to be saved. No, she ends up kicking the biggest guy in this movie's ass and killing him. I mean, she is just hands down incredible. And I'm so glad that they figuratively and literally don't pull any punches with her. Um, and it, it makes her... Uh, such a great character and not only that but they give her this great character arc of her being trapped in this by um you know this this um you know because there's really kind of two bad guys in this film this uh rogue nation and who it's led by but then who's responsible for the rogue nation and it's just so well done so i'm you know and and then the way that she plays with with uh peg uh, I think was really great as well. So all together, this is probably, I think this is the finest cast that they've put together and the chemistry they all have. Even Renner. I thought Renner was really, I, I didn't love him in, in Ghost Protocol. I think he was, I felt like he was a little stiff. But here I felt like he had loosened up and they they played his role to perfection too to where you thought he was going to turn on them and they use that to their advantage. I just, it's, it's really, really well done. Bruce, what did you end up thinking about, uh, you know, having Cruz back and, and, you know, Peg and Rames and Renner, uh, and then kind of adding Rebecca Ferguson to that. I like the fact that we're seeing a, uh, ensemble cast that is carrying through to the next movie. And I think in the first movie going into the second, we had different, ensemble cast members then the third we had again different members now i feel like we're seeing a consistency and as you said with ghost protocol we're seeing renner introduced in that movie carrying on to this we have benji in this one we have luther in this one and uh you know now that we have rebecca ferguson the way that that it ended with them she i think she didn't she say something like you know where to find or you'll be able to find me yes, or i'll find yes. you I, it, you know it, how to find me. Yeah, it's that call as if the next mission and the next movie, he's going to need her and he's going to go get her. So I feel like we're going to see this ensemble cast carry on to the next movie. And you're right, there's so much chemistry between them and she's definitely his equal. 
maybe even better than than he is. I mean, she was playing everybody at this, and I've always mm-hmm. felt she was one step ahead of of Ethan Hunt throughout this movie. And I yes. mean, eventually he figured it out. But that you know, and, and well, I'll jump to towards the end of the film when when they're sitting at the cafe, and that silence, mm-hmm. and them just looking mm-hmm. at each other as if they're communicating, just mentally and looking at each other they know what each other needs to do and there's just this total silence there's no audio during that scene in the movie well i think they've been operators for a long time i think that we understand that they are still no matter how good they are at their individual positions they still have to serve their own masters in this case it would have been the secretary for the, the imf of which there isn't one yet and for ilsa it would have been the head of mi6 And she knew that there was really no way out for her, no matter how good she was at her job. She was just this instrument. Ethan Hunt, I believe, never lost sight of that, even when he has to answer to Alec Baldwin's character eventually at the end uh, because he's the new secretary of the IMF. And I think that operators or people that have been in that profession for so long, they, they just have that unspoken language i guess and they know that you know what i can count on you you can count on me you've proven yourself that you have my back and that's it that's all we have to say about it because when the chips are down you saved me and in more ways than one and you have the ability woman or not you know so and i think that was the great thing about her character is that they gave her every tool at her disposal to be able to do her job right, and they never shied away from the fact that she wasn't qualified at every turn to do what she had to do. And she stood up to the best of the characters, and again, she had those really nice interplay moments with some of the secondary characters. So as far as I'm concerned, she's probably the most well-rounded female character that they've introduced in Mission Impossible, I thought Paula Patton was, but Paula Patton had a very singular drive in in Ghost Protocol. She was it was a it was a revenge mission for her, so it didn't really give her a lot to go on. But for Ilsa, she had to be double and triple agent at the same time because she had to play everybody for the end game. And I thought that was really well done. Well, and you're right. The agents do think a lot alike. They've been trained and they've served their own masters. And in the opera scene. She was there to assassinate the Chancellor of Austria. And, uh, but of course, we see Ethan Hunt take a shot, just, you know, graze his shoulder or his arm to get him out of the way from being shot. And then later she reveals, well, that's what she was going to do too. She was hired or she was brought in to assassinate him, but she wasn't going to do that. She was going to do that exact same thing that he did. So they're thinking just alike on this is how you handle these situations. Graze his arm, have him fall back, avoid being shot from the other, other, other assassins. And I'll say one thing real quick. The yellow dress is, like, stands out in my mind, the way she walks up that staircase and that flows and then the next scene, you see the curtains on the stage. I mean, it was just, that was just perfect. <laughs> and like Ethan, she knows how to use everything to her advantage. And um, she is using um, the parts of her that are a woman to her advantage, but she's doing it. She's making the choice to do that. She's using um, 
all of the training that she has. And I think that's what's so cool about this this movie is, again, it makes her the equal of all of the people on screen. And the only time that we kind of see that maybe she isn't is that she can't hold her breath as long as Tom Cruise can. That's it. Except for the fact that Tom Cruise dies and she's the one who saves him. So it's like in the end... She still becomes the person who is one of the most pivotal characters in the entire thing. Um, and without, you know, her, things fall apart. So I, I really, I just, I really like her character. Um, and I really, the more I think about it, the more I, 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 I just kind of want to gush about it. Uh, because it's, it's, it's such a well done piece, I think, for what strong female characters I think should look like on screen and and what I think so many women want to see portrayed on screen of themselves and 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 their sex is that it looks like this and it's indistinguishable from the guys for all the right reasons um so well done for them in in the writing here I, I'm really uh, glad that yeah she rocked this part um we've talked <laughs> a ton about her and she's one of the new friends in the movie uh but we have some other new friends and new enemies uh you've got alec baldwin in the movie who kind of starts off as an antagonist and makes the turn which is very fun uh you've got solomon lane who is in the movie as well um he is actually the leader of the rogue nation um and then you've got uh atley who is the kind of counterpart to Alec Baldwin's character, Alan Huntley, who is is the kind of the counterpart for Atlee. Uh, and it turns out that Atlee is actually the bad guy. And he's in the British Secret Service. And so I love how Mission Impossible always does the thing where it does the twist on the twist. And nice to see them keeping that up, but not making it so complicated that you get lost. No, I really liked Alec Baldwin in this part because a little Alec Baldwin goes a long way. And it, <laughs> I mean, it really does. <laughs> you know? That's oh, so true. He brings, I mean, he has, um, you know, a very storied and legendary type of acting history. I mean, when you look at him on screen, you're like, wow, he's back in a spy movie again. I mean, this is, you know, this is the original Jack Ryan. And it's kind of neat to see him in there because he's still, I mean, for all intents and purposes, for his age and for his lifestyle or his previous lifestyle he's pretty still well intact and and he's very handsome and very charming and you know he's a little on the stuffed side now but that's okay because you know he's playing the you know the um on the hill stuffed shirt you know CIA director which was great i think he i think he is one of those types that is really good for that kind of a role john voigt was very much in that same type of gravitas in the first movie where you have this this established elder statesman actor as as part of this overall cast but you know that he brings just a certain type of charm you know to that role i thought that was great i thought that the um the interplay between the two different heads of the departments was really interesting although i still do think that you knew that there was going to be a mask reveal involved in a very crucial situation so i thought that was telegraphed a little bit but hey you know of course it's, it's mission impossible there's going to be a mask in there somewhere and, if there's uh, not, I'm, you kind of feel cheated. 
Right. And and even if it is, it's just like, okay, yeah, we know it's coming, but it's still cool because it's the mask and it's just a it's a it's a it's a traditional trope now and But not and the Jim Carrey mask. No, not the no. And it's not a Simon Pegg mask either, much to his chagrin. <laughs> because sooner or later he's gonna get his mask. So the the only real issue I have with the movie, and this is a very small gripe, and it's just something that personally I don't I don't uh, care for, is when they cast a villain of Lane's magnitude, and he doesn't for me fit the physical appearance of who I believe would be an anti Ethan Hunt. Because the whole point of this movie they keep talking about, this is an anti-IMF. And the person who defects from British Secret Service to create this anti-IMF is supposed to be, in my opinion, it's kind of like a, an anti-Born or an anti-Ethan Hunt or an anti-Bond. And I don't see the actor that played Stephen Lane, I mean Solomon Lane, as good as he was in the role, I don't see him seducing women with charm or looks. I don't see him being like Alex Trevelyan you know, 006 in GoldenEye. Sean Bain, you know, he was sinister, but he was handsome at the same time. And you felt that in his performance. And I always felt that Lane was just kind of, man, I wish I was as good looking as Ethan Hunt. That's why I'm a bad guy now. Because he's so good looking, I have to be this ugly looking awesome spy guy and I'm not him. So I'm going to take him down. That's how I felt. I'm you sorry, don't, I just got you don't think it's his <laughs> charming voice that gets the ladies and he's like, hey, come in. Hey, let me get, I, I need the disc. <laughs> I mean, he was, I, I understand. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you understand the role. <laughs> you know, he's like, I, I want disc. you to bring Give me, me that USB drive. <laughs> yeah. I sound like I'm trying to do, like, you know, uh, something Marlon like Brando. Marlon Brando, but not quite. Yeah. He's like an 80 pound Marlon Brando. Right, is what he was. <laughs> with his teeth you know? clenched, you know, <laughs> yeah, little oh, skinny guy. God. I mean, let's put it. I mean, Philip Seymour Hoffman in three was oh, so good, so good. And yeah, and he, no, he didn't fit the physical appearance of your typical roguish bad guy. But he's such a good actor that it didn't even matter. And I don't, I just don't think that this particular character for the role he was in was quite up to par with being a new character in this new movie the way that Rebecca Ferguson was as Ilsa. What do you think, Bruce? Did, did you like uh, the, the actor that was uh, playing Solomon Lane? Do you feel like um, he did what he needed to do in the movie, what they were kind of asking him to do and, and the character he was supposed to be portraying? Yeah, I think so. I I, I get what Norman is saying, but, uh, you know, it's... I, yeah, I he just seems like a sleazeball, you know? And that just worked yeah, so I mean, well for me. I, I didn't like him. Uh, it's like, he, he, yeah, he just seemed like a sleazeball. And the way he talked and the way he looked, it, it, he was kind of creepy in a lot of ways, which is good for a, for a character like that. But yeah, he's not, mentally he may be Ethan Hunt's equal, but physically as an agent out in the field, he, he wouldn't ha- hold a candle to him, which is good that the fact they didn't have a real fight scene together because it, it really would have come across really weak. But I also don't think he was one of the best villains uh, we've seen in this franchise. I think when it's all said and done, if you start to watch the other movies, he, he's somewhat forgettable. I can see what you guys are saying. For me, what I I liked about his character is I kind of liked that he wasn't the equal physically, that it was just his brains that was Ethan's, you know, biggest concern. And 
I did like that it took everything that Ethan had mentally to be able to beat him, not physically. And I thought that that was really interesting because we are kind of used to Tom Cruise running people down and those kind of things in these films. And I liked that we were really showcasing, you know, Ethan's getting older. <laughs> Tom Cruise is getting older. and But his mind is still as sharp. And so I think that's an important thing going forward and how they deal with the character. Um, but I can see what you guys are saying in the sense that there's, there is something a little bit that just doesn't feel exactly what you'd want maybe you maybe want him to be more imposing um but i do i think he's creepy enough i think he's uh, he's smart enough he seems smart enough and all of that so i, I really did enjoy uh, kind of his his character and what he does in the movie because he really isn't the the only bad guy here and this kind of leads into the idea of this rogue intelligence this rogue nation was the mastermind idea of atley from the British Secret Service, of creating a rogue nation that um, would have access to funds that only the Prime Minister of England would know about. And he would release these funds, and they would basically do his bidding when it came to um, offing people that they found dangerous. Um, and it really led to some interesting questions about how and why we do intelligence, how we gather that intelligence, and what's happening out there in this world where we do see rogue nations, rogue groups that don't really have a nation taking over countries. I mean, we kind of live in a in a scary time. And this movie was actually very relevant with the type of questions that it was asking and how you respond to that. I mean, that was really the British idea. How do we respond to these elements let's let's say it, like isis or something like that i mean what do you do and and this was a very interesting idea and basically the the question was do we fight fire with fire do we play like they do or do we play by what's right and i love that in the end the answer here was no no we don't that's not how we do things um and it backfires on them too yeah cuz atley and norm said earlier about atley being the other villain of this film i didn't quite take him that way because even though he was setting up this organization for what you just described matthew um for those reasons and then realized this is a bad idea and he didn't give his approval to move forward but therefore these agents went rogue and went ahead and did it for him now yeah he was protecting the fact that he didn't want anybody to know that this organization started up and was rogue and it would reflect badly on the British. But at the same time, I think he, you know, maybe he was trying to find a way to, to get, do away with them or, or somehow find a way to get rid of them without having it reflected back on the British that he's the one who has actually started it. But he did pull back at the last minute and say no. So you're right. The message was, this is the wrong way to do things. And I think he knew that going in, when he started going into it, he pulled back but it's these rogue agents that that kept it going, and it it it's the wrong way to do things. Fighting fire with fire, you know, maybe it is the right thing. I don't think it is. I think it goes down a slippery slope, and that fire just becomes a bigger fire, and it becomes the same fire you're trying to put out. And these guys ended up being terrorists for that reason. 
You know, one, one of the things I liked about um, this Rogue Nation, it was almost kind of like a, a, a nod to the first movie when you were dealing with the knock list, because that's, that's essentially where a lot of these agents for this Rogue Nation would have come from if they decided to defect from their specific service. So I thought that was kind of neat. But for, for something like this, Skyfall really kind of came into play for me because Silva in Skyfall, he was a, basically he was a rogue double agent, a double O agent, someone who M left basically hang, uh, hung out to dry. So what happens when you have these agents that are so well-trained that know, where you're, that know where their funding is coming from, that can find all of these different caches and hideouts and resources and contacts and safe houses and aliases and passports and you name it, and everything is at their disposal. So how do you govern something like that if it goes sideways? You hope, I mean, you're basically saying in this movie, hopefully there, there are still a handful of people or organizations that could actually combat something like this because if the IMF didn't exist or if Ethan Hunt's character didn't have that moral compass to say, hey, you know what, we have to stop these renegade agents, then there really is no other line of defense because these pe- this is what these people are trained to do. Alec Baldwin's character, the, the, the head of the CIA, he had this really nice glowing review of who Ethan Hunt is. He's like, he said he was destiny or his his own will made manifest. There's nothing that can stop him. There's no agency that can beat him. There's no resource that can thwart him. There's nothing that can stop an agent like this from doing what he wants to do if he puts his mind to it. Now multiply that by 20. And that's what a rogue nation is. And that I think it's a really interesting dilemma that, that you throw out there. Like, well, what if this existed? What if the, you know, what if all of the double O agents, um, you know, one through nine, just went sideways. How do you stop them? How does MI6 stop their top operatives from just going for themselves, you know, servicing themselves and putting people in power that they want in power, influencing governments with assassinations that they choose? Who stops them? It's kind of like that whole thing. Who watches the Watchmen? Who governs those with that extraordinary power and resource? Right, because this wouldn't be the last time that agents go rogue. I think there was a message even in the film that, I mean, they're getting desensitized. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're, yep. that their humanity is being shattered. They're going around while they're good agents on missions and they're killing people and they're surrounding themselves by all this corruption that they fall into it. They're desensitized. They're dehumanized as to what it is to have that sensibility as to having a level set because i mean you know mindset because when you're out there doing what even ethan hunt is doing you're not a normal person you do not live in the world of reality as we know it and that's a dangerous place to be in there's a fine line as to where you're going to cross and go over the edge in those situations i mean there would be some nice some nice instances there sometime maybe in the next movie where they're getting debriefed like bond did in Skyfall, where Ethan Hunt really comes to terms with, I can't, I can lead these people, but I just emotionally can't do this anymore. Like someone sooner or later, the cavalier quality of these spies and the way that they handle themselves in these missions is going to get, it's going to get somebody killed, obviously, but it's going to be so tragic, like a child or a family. And yes, they, they fulfilled the mission, but at what cost? And I still think that there is that part 
of the story that still needs to be told at what cost? Because, I mean, Matthew, we've, we've talked about this, about the Man of Steel, when Superman had to kill Zod. He had no choice because the cost was the humans that he was sworn to save, that he swore himself to save. That's the cost, was taking out the last Kryptonian, not himself, but Zod. So when you know, you're faced with this type of situation, when Ethan Hunt's like, well, it's either my mission or these innocent people, you have to balance that. Well, I save billions, but these three have to die. And I still would like to see that somehow written into one of these movies. And maybe that's how they pass the torch. Maybe he's like, you know what? I'm tired of making these decisions. It's like what Christopher Pike said at the very beginning of the cage. He's like, I am tired for making the decisions, the life and death decisions for 400 something odd crewmen on a daily basis. I can't do it anymore. You know, I've, I've served my time. And I think that's an, I think that's a realistic uh, angle for one of these movies to take. Well, and they asked that question a little bit because there is, you know, Lane does what he does because he had spent so much time taking orders and killing that he became desensitized to it and he wanted to be the one to make the the change because he felt like he was just guarding the status quo and how good was that and then of course uh, Ilsa's character asks Tom Cruise like how do we even know that we're the good guys we're the good guys because we believe we're on the right side but does that make it right you know so they're asking all these really great questions and one of the things I think that sets Ethan apart is that one that he believes that he is fighting for the right side and he also does everything he can do to keep innocent life from being taken if if that's at all possible like that's always factoring into his plans and that's what makes Ethan so successful most of the time in what he does unless you blow up the Kremlin on accident but that wasn't really him so right. you know um yeah i, I think that that's I. This is a great movie. It's a great summer movie, and another one we're talking about. Where, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. It's a blast. There's explosions. There's running. You know, um, it's a blast. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's all this stuff happening, but at the same time, that it is asking some very pertinent questions, and they're important questions now. And so I really like when that happens because Mission Impossible is the quintessential, I think, type of movie for the summer and it's it's proven that for the last three films that it's done that it understands how to be to ask some questions and and i i think this one is one of the the ones that have some of the best questions to ask but at the same time be a good time and that's that's a hard line to walk you know and uh if you're doing it well i hope Many people will go see this because it's a it's a great it's a great summer movie. Um, and I gotta say, it has the stunts to back it up too. When you realize that the two biggest stunts in the movie, the airplane scene at the very beginning, that you've seen if you've seen the trailer, and the the water scene are all real scenes, and Tom Cruise filmed both of them, and the water scene he did for six minutes in one single take without any edits. Yeah, I didn't know that, but he was trained to hold his breath uh, so that um, he could do that underwater sequence and and do it in one long take. Incredible what this guy's doing for for his movie. 
Right. And the underwater scene, if I remember correctly, it, it goes on for maybe a couple minutes and there is no cuts. There are no breaks. The camera just follows him around through the water. And then I think there is a cut back to Elsa and then another one back to Benji. And then we're back to underwater again. And again, it stays with him for like another, you know, minute or two. And, uh, that camera doesn't, there's not any quick takes, no different angles. That camera's just following him through all that water. And, you know, you know, there's that scene where he's drowning and I kept wondering, how did he pull that off? He's got air coming out of his lungs. They certainly had to train him how to expel some of that wa- uh, air in the water and uh, probably immediately pulled him out. But uh, And then the um, motorcycle chase was him, too. There was close-ups of him on that, too, which he actually kind of looked funny looking on the motorcycle thing. His face was all stretched out, but... But yeah, it was all him. Well, I think uh, after his his first encounter, um, being taught how to like you know basically drive stock cars, race cars with Paul Newman after Color of Money, I think that started his love affair with a lot of like these just this high speed. I don't know what do you call it hobbies, I guess. Because in Mission Impossible Two, there was a lot of motorcycle work going on. That was like the big kind of creme de la creme of what John Woo was was directing these motorcycle gun ballets. And maybe that's where these things kind of like went off track. So yeah, Tom Cruise is no stranger to to doing these type of high speed chases. I think I mean they were fantastic, but as they were there and they serviced the story. I mean they the first scene is very much akin to any type of James Bond cold opening where it's just like bang, you're in the action. Doesn't matter how you got there, you're following Tom Cruise and you're like okay, he's still at the level as an operative as he's always been, maybe even a little higher because of that stunt that he's doing. And it sells you on, these guys are still continuing to do the mission since you last saw them in Ghost Protocol. So yeah, he commits himself and you can feel it. And I think that that's where just the quality is imbued throughout the entire movie. He commits himself to every single scene, every single stunt that he's allowed to do and every single reaction that they catch her on film. That's him. And he knows that in order to compete in today's marketplace, you have to be able to sell yourself as a lead actor, not only in the acting performance, but also in the stunt performances as well, just like Edge of Tomorrow. I mean, I know I keep going back to that, but man, that that movie really solidified him in this kind of like this next phase of his career for that and Jack Reacher as this really just well-seasoned action lead actor i think he just he just did a fantastic job i mean it's hard to describe what he did in this movie because it's so visually reactive you're like watching him you're like oh my god is what's gonna happen you know that nothing's gonna happen to him in the end but you're really invested in that scene and he he locks eyes with you and he makes you feel like you're a part of that story i mean you're benji open the door (laughs) the other door door. (laughs) it's uh it's so good and and that's one of the things that Tom Cruise is really good at, too, is that straight man type of humor where it's a funny scene just the way it's all being played. Um, yeah, he he's very, very good. And I'm very glad, again, that he's just kind of finding his way um, back into the hearts of, of, of you know, fans. Um, and it's because he's just making quality movies again. And um, this, is, this is definitely quality. Well, before we get the ratings, I kind of wanted to ask you guys, and we've talked a little bit around this, but what you think the future missions for Mission Impossible will be um, with Cruz getting older, 
Um, where do you think they will go? Obviously, they are already working on six. Cruz has said that on the talk show circuit now, uh, and they're hoping to have it in production next year. So they are definitely trying to capitalize with not just that, but I think try and get it in so that Cruz is still in the place he's in. He's still in the shape he's in. Um, where do you think this is will go, and, and what would you like to see? Well, personally, I still think that being able to invest yourself in long-form storytelling might be an interesting way for Mission Impossible to go. So it's a possibility that it's it can be destined for the small screen again with the popularity that it has. And perhaps, just like they did with Star Trek, in a way, you have the movie franchise and you have the TV franchise. So you could have Ethan Hunt continue the Ethan Hunt team with the IMF. And then you could have a completely new, younger team take on like your standard BBC 10 to 12 episode type of series. I mean, Orphan Black does the espionage story really well, even though it's not kind of like your traditional spy type show. But the way that they structure that show, you're a cliffhanger at every end of the episode. You are literally like on the edge of your seat every time that episode ends. And that's something that a spy genre type of story like would really benefit from. And you could tell like these longer stories with these large arcs between this IMF team coming together and an overarching villain that for all intents and purposes, like kind of like a phantom menace, it doesn't reveal itself until the end. So, or it can always keep changing season after season. So it would be neat to see mission impossible back on TV and, 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 and have that continued on, on the large screen and maybe somewhere along the line, Ethan Hunt, Tom Cruise would grace the TV show every once in a while and say, okay, it's kind of like the way agents of shield and the Marvel movies are. You know, every every so often, you know, um, one of the characters like Sif or um, like Coulson, you know, they would they would tie those shows together, the shows, the shows and the movies. So I would like to see it back on TV because you just get more of it. And and uh, who wouldn't like to see more Mission Impossible? Well, I just want to throw out real quick. They did try to bring it back to TV in the late 80s. It only lasted one season. Uh I don't really know the history about about it, but what you just talked about, I think there were several times after the original Mission Impossible, they tried to bring it back to television, I think in the early 80s, then in the mid 80s, then they successfully launched it sometime later in the 80s. And for whatever reason, it, it, it didn't last. But and now it's the movie franchise. And yeah, I would love to see it on television or on Amazon, Netflix or HBO or whatever. I'd love to see it back as original series, but if the movie series continues and we're going to the next movie, I think I'd like to continue seeing that play on what we were talking about earlier about these agents kind of being on that edge and maybe seeing Ethan Hunt cross that line or in other words, kind of dip his toe into the dark side. And it takes the team of people, including Elsa to bring him back that he almost becomes the bad guy and the team becomes the good guys that go after Ethan and maybe bring him back into the fold. I, I'd like to see something along those lines play out in the next film. Well, I don't, I don't know about TV and uh, what they're going to do. I think that's a fun idea, uh, especially if they can make it work. I, I have no problems with that. Um, for the film with six, I, I do definitely hope that Rebecca Ferguson's character is back Ilsa um, in some way. I hope they're able to bring her into the IMF fold. I think that would be really, really fun to have her a part of the team. And, uh, you know, uh, we do have to be thinking about setting up somebody else to be the infield agent while maybe in the end, um, 
you know, Tom Cruise's character is the Alec Baldwin character. He's the one in charge of IMF. Um, and who better to be in charge? And and honestly, like you, we've talked about, you can keep doing this as long as you can come up with good stories and you have fun characters like in a, a character we're going to care about. Like, I mean, I, I feel like we all here care more about Ilsa's character than we do Jimmy Renner's character. Um, so you, you need, you're going to have to give us that person that we can relate to like they've done with Ethan Hunt. Um, and uh, I think perf- they have the perfect person. And uh, I think it's uh, Rebecca Ferguson. And so bring her back and make her more a part of it so that she can be the one out in the field doing what Ethan does. Well, you know, Ethan's, you know, back at, at headquarters trying to make sure everything doesn't, you know, fall to, to pot. So it just, yeah, I'm excited though. I mean, uh, I feel like the Mission Impossible movies, strangely enough, just keep getting better and better for the most part. Um, and uh, so for you guys, uh, what would you rate this one? Uh, how would you... Uh, rate this in the series Ooh, i would rate this as my top pick in the series i i think this was the best one i think you said it earlier they get it right they're getting better and better all the time i think uh, mission possible 3 had the best uh beginning of a film because they started immediately in the middle of a scene that you see later in the film where uh, ethan hunt's wife is getting tortured and he's he's handcuffed to a chair but outside of that uh I think the rest of this movie, Rogue Nation, got it right on all cylinders, and I think it's the best one. You know, when um, we talked about James Bond in the last show, Matthew, John Champion kind of took Casino Royale and Skyfall and kind of grouped them together as like, you know, his his quintessential Bond movie for Craig. I'm probably going to have to go that route here with Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation because I think they work so well together. They bookend each other so well. And with the exception of Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa, who pretty much kind of like is the tiebreaker, I would probably have to give Rogue Nation just that little bit of an edge as my favorite of the, of the film so far, just because the way that she was shot in the opera scene and that just entire scene in general, I did not find a scene of that quality overall in Ghost Protocol. There were a lot of great action scenes and Tom Cruise climbing the, the skyscraper in Dubai. That was all fantastic. Paula Patton, you know, whipping ass on that, you know, all the people that she does. That's all fantastic. And she looked great doing it. But there was a certain just this elevated craft of storytelling where you're watching all of these dynamics in play. You're watching Tom Cruise go up and down the, the, the scaffolding and the baffles and is he going to get the guy? Is he not going to get the guy? And it's What's funny. Ilsa's, and know? it's also funny how the scaffolding's moving because of Benji's. That's a comedic yeah. part of it, too. <laughs> right. So you have this really nice interplay of all these dynamics showing off the personalities. Tom Cruise is trying to be the Swiss army knife that fixes everything. Benji is the com- comedic relief. Whether he wants to be or not, he's just that's that's the Simon Pegg gravitas. And now you have Rebecca Ferguson who brings this huge new dynamic as to, okay, she has beauty. She has lethality. She has this really sense, this really just engaging sense of clarity to her acting. So for me, I really do with, with the exception of Solomon Lane, and I've already kind of like made my opinion known about him. I think that Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa takes it just above ghost protocol for me. So for a rating, I would give it 
0.75 exploding mission tapes. Mm. That's awesome. Oh, man, I've been thinking about this a lot. and um, It's 4.75 out of 5. <laughs> Not 10. <laughs> 4.75 out of infinity or something. I really think... I, I think I'm with you, Norm, that for me, this and Ghost Protocol are tied. And uh, I have... I have a, an account on this fun website called Letterboxd that allows you to um, keep a diary of all the movies you watch, rate all the movies you watch, make lists and everything. And yeah, I, I as we were talking, I had to change the way that I had the list that for me, Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation are tied. Um, and honestly, I'm I'm right there with you that if there's anything that I think makes Rogue Nation maybe just a slight bit better is what we talked about with Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa and uh, the fact that I really love her character and that just wasn't there quite as much in, in Ghost Protocol. Uh, Paul Patton was great in that movie, but the, the resonance of the character wasn't quite the same. So this is, this is brilliant. Uh, yeah, I give this... Uh, 4.75 exploding motorcycles. It's so good. So, and I do want to give a shout out there to Joe uh, Kramer and his score because he does a great job of working in the theme of Mission Impossible that we talked so much about at the beginning of the show, but at the same time, really making this an exciting action score um, and giving some some really nice cues. I have the score. I've been listening to it. Really enjoy it. So uh, if you're a film score person, uh, check this one out. I think you'll really enjoy it because you get some of the great Mission Impossible theme music that you love. But at the same time, you're just going to get, uh, I think, a, a, a nice summer action score that um, has some some good elements beyond just, oh, hey, that's the Mission Impossible theme. Giacchino did four, right? He did Ghost Protocol? He did three and four. Three yeah. and four? Okay, mm-hmm. okay. What about, um? we didn't get your rating there. My rating. Uh, I, I give it uh, nine pairs of Elsa shoes out of ten. Nice. <laughs> I, I don't know why she kept referring to, I didn't get the shoe joke throughout, but, you know. He kept say he said to her at one point, "Oh, nice shoes." And then later, she's like, "Take my shoes." <laughs> anyway, that's because the key was next to her shoes, and oh. so he was referencing the key that was next to her shoes. Got uh, it. So, and then there's the rabbit foot inside joke. So we all exactly, we all like yeah. All right. It was the rabbit foot there, which was very funny. Yeah. Well, guys, I'm so glad that we did get a chance uh, to talk about Rogue Nation. You know, I went into the film. Uh, a little bit trepidatious, just the fact, can this really be as good as uh, Ghost Protocol was? And I got to see it a little bit early, uh, about a week early, because my wife uh, is in the military still. And they had a special showing on base for the soldiers, and she was out of town, but she gave me her free ticket. So I got to go over on base and watch it with all the soldiers, and uh, which it was very interesting to be at a movie theater on, on base. Um they, they actually stand and they play the um, national anthem before the movie starts and everybody has their hand over their heart and singing. It was, it was very patriotic and awesome uh, and then got to see the movie and that was before any of the reviews had really come out. So it was really cool to see it and be like, oh man, this movie is so much fun. Uh, and then we went and saw it again um, this last weekend. So yeah, I'm, I, I just, again, when's the last time you went to number five in a film series and 
you were like, that's probably the best one I've ever seen. Can I be really witty about that? Are you going to mock Star Trek I think Bruce. No, I think Bruce knows where I'm going. Yep. Empire Strikes yep, Back. Yep, that's the fifth one. <laughs> nice. Okay, you're right. You're right. You got me. But but I'm just saying. I'm just that. That's just. Yeah. That's just me being. Oh no, cheeky. that's. I was thinking funny. the exact same thing. I'm like, well, it's not really the fifth. But yeah. <laughs> oh man. Well, guys, again, so much fun talking about Mission Impossible today. Make sure that you check out all the shows on Trek.fm. In fact, Trek.fm is a great place online. Not only to check out the shows, but check out the show pages. Um, and a lot of the show pages, we might put show notes on there that you can see things we might have talked about in the show. We might link to there, uh, especially with um, some of the other shows like Literary Treks and things like that. We'll put things there. Uh, so make sure you check out Trek FM. It's the great place to start. And then, of course, Norm, uh, help me out and, and just remind everybody uh, about Patreon and how they can help the network keep coming to them each week. So I think a lot of the listeners know, and if you're new to this show, thank you for listening and, and welcome. Uh, Patreon.com slash TrekFM is where you can find how to support the TrekFM network. You know, we are an independent network and station, and we do all of what we do with the good graces and funding of all of you, our patrons or people that like to support the show. So if you go to Patreon.com slash TrekFM, you can find different ways that you would like to be able to insert yourself into helping support the show. That's how I got started with the network. And sometimes we allow you to see some or allow you to listen to some exclusive content. You can come and maybe join us on the show. We've had guest stars here that are patrons that uh, just are fans of all the different types of shows that we offer here. There are just so many different ways that you can show your support. And we thank you for every single cent that comes our way through patreon.com slash trekfm because if it's not for you, we we basically have to take uh, pay for the services out of pocket. So if you're interested in supporting your fandom and helping bring all of this great content to you here at Trek FM, take a look at that page, see what you would like to do. We're very flexible about the paying. It doesn't have to be the same amount all the time. Whatever is just right for you because whatever's right for you, we're going to make it work. It's right for us. And I think it's a win-win situation. Um, I've met a lot of great people here. I've met Bruce actually for the first time here on the air, but I know about him through the Babel Conference, and we're probably going to get to that in just a second. So back to you, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is, I think, one of the coolest things about uh, Patreon.com is that you know we all have a passion for what we do here on Trek FM, and we just love sharing that passion with you. I mean, it's the reason that I started the 602 Club, and I brought that idea to Chris, and I said, hey, what if we had a show where we talked about just geeky things, and, and we decided to kind of reformat one of our old shows and, and redo it, and uh, this is one of my huge passions, just talking about all this other geeky stuff that isn't revolving around Star Trek. So join us in... in and our passion for all of these things. We know you have a passion for it, and, and we hope you'll check us out at patreon.com slash trekfm and find what's right for you. Um, and I really want to say a special thanks to Ken Tripp. Um, without him and his support, uh, this show wouldn't come to you each week. He's been my associate producer here for the longest time, and I really appreciate him. Um, he's, a, he's a really great guy. Um, I was talking to him the other day 
on um, Facebook, and I just really appreciate all that he does. Uh, he's he's very much, in a lot of ways, the silent type. Uh, he doesn't expect a lot of praise for what he does. Um, but again, without him, we, we just wouldn't be here. And of course, uh, I have Norman as one of the associate producers, along with C. Brian Jones. Um, you know, it, it's it's a real joy to be able to do this network with these two guys, the guys that I just really respect. And of course, if uh, you'd like to uh, get in touch with us, you can do that in many different ways at trek.fm slash contact. You can leave us a voicemail, look in the sidebar on the show page, or just go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We are on Twitter at trek.fm and then of course on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And if you'd like to really interact with everybody who listens to Trek FM, you can do that at the Babel Conference, and that is our listeners-only discussion group. Type Babel into the search field on Facebook or click Discussion on the menu bar there at trek.fm, and that will bring you to the group, and we'd love to have you join. It's an exclusive group for just the listeners, and you can join us there with all the great conversations we're having. I mean, honestly, some of the best conversations I've had about anything geek-related, Star Trek or otherwise, have happened at the Babel Conference, so I hope you'll join. Um, Bruce, tell everybody, uh, I I love that uh, we've had you on the show so much this summer. It's great to have you part of the family here at the 602 and Trek FM. Tell everybody where they can find you online. Oh, you're going to make me cry. Um, no. <laughs> <laughs> you jerk. <laughs> no, but and thank you for having me here. I'm enjoying it. But, uh, yeah, I'm in the Babel Conference but uh, quite often. But you can also find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And uh, I've also started doing some writing with uh, on StarWarsReport.com. And I do want to just throw out there that uh, if anyone listening is attending Dragon Con in Atlanta this year, I will be there all four days, and supposedly I'll be on a couple of panels too, so I'd love to meet you. Oh man, that sounds like a lot of fun. I'm, I'm so jealous of you guys getting to be at Dragon Con. I just, I live on the other side of the country, so getting there is a little bit rough. That's right, we'll hang out at the 602 and just order a couple more drinks from Ruby. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's yeah. a good idea. Well, Norm, uh, tell everybody where they can uh, find you on the network and online as well. Well, you can find me here on Trek FM as one of the co-hosts for Warp 5, our dedicated enterprise show. You can also find me on Facebook on the Babel Conference. That's B-A-B-E-L in your search field. You can also find me on Twitter. That's Norman Lau, N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. And you can always find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I'm a huge supporter of that project and Alec Peters. Who Bruce will be at Dragon Con. That's one of our that's one of Axanar's big venues. So if you want to check out Star Trek Axanar and that what they're doing with that independent film for Star Trek is uh, they have panels there in now Dragon Con is it's it's hosted in different hotels. That's the format, right? It's not in one convention center. Yeah, there's uh, actually it's up to five hotels that are all within walking distance, and then there's the uh, America's Mart that's going to have. So there's actually six facilities. Okay, because I hear it's I hear it's a great time. Uh, hopefully, I'll be able to to make it out there for one of these events. But and aside from that, you can always find me here at Trek FM, and I am a, an executive producer here on the network. And again, that is one of the ways that I help support and I found it through Patreon so all you people that are on the fence about trying to figure out how to have as much fun as we're having 
on the air. Take a look at what we can offer you at Patreon. So back to you, Matthew. Well, guys, uh, you can find me at Twitter at uh, MattRushing02. You can find me on Instagram at MRushing. You can find me on The Orb with Christopher Jones, where he talks exclusively about Deep Space Nine. And, and I'm going to say it, it's the best Star Trek show out there. And if you don't believe me, just listen to The Orb, and Chris and I are going to convince you of that. Um, and then do literary treks with Dan where we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek and we also interview the authors of so many of the new books so check that out a great place to really enjoy uh, honestly the prime universe it's the only place to really get it these days with new stories about your favorite characters so great place to join us there and then I do my own personal blog where I write book reviews and other movie reviews uh, just Things that really mean something to me. If you'd like to check that out, it's at 42lifeinbetween.wordpress.com. Thank you so much for joining us. And y'all come back now, you hear? This message will self-destruct in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1.